Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Broadstairs Consulting believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, we've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day, a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes released every Thursday. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hi, hello and welcome. This is Mid-Atlantic. This is me, Royful Brown, who's still in Ottawa. And today I went to the seat of Canadian democracy. I went to the parliament here took my son and we saw a debate about affordability or the lack of affordability in terms of Canadians' pockets. What was tremendously illuminating about this conversation is this debate was had in the Canadian Parliament. It could have been had just about anywhere in the Western world that people are being squeezed by housing costs and by crippling energy bills. So what happens in Canada happens in the UK, happens in the US. But today we are going to dive deep into the political whirlwind which has swept the House of Representatives in the United States. And we're going to do that with Cora Bernard, political commentator from Manchester in the UK, Zeke Cohen-Sanchez. She's Director of Operations at Soul Strategies in Nevada. We have Leah Brown, the founder of Broadstairs Consulting over there in Kent in the UK. We have Aaron Fisher from California, who's a political activist and strategist. And we have Steve O'Neill, political advisor and the host of the No Man's Land podcast. Kevin McCarthy's nine-month tenure as Speaker was the shortest since 1876, and his unprecedented midterm ousting has sent shockwaves throughout Congress. His removal, led by the hard right of the Republican Party, has shown the stark divisions within that party. With all 208 House Democrats voting against McCarthy, should we now question the strategy behind their unanimous opposition to his speakership? Was it a missed opportunity for House Minority Leader Hacking Jeffries to support McCarthy and maintain some semblance of control and governance? As the GOP grapples with its policy fault lines, we ponder the broader implications for both parties. 
with the upcoming legislative priorities and the very functioning of American governance at stake. One of the most powerful figures in Washington now gone. Kevin McCarthy cannibalized by the far-right members of his own Republican Party. Eight of them teaming up with Democrats, enough for a majority vote to oust him. The office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. Silence after an unprecedented moment, a sign of a chamber in shock. Some Republicans barely contained their anger. The chair declares the House in recess, subject to the call of the chair. Anger directed mostly at Matt Gates, the Florida Republican leading the coup. Chaos is Speaker McCarthy. Chaos is somebody who we cannot trust with their word. Gates triggered the vote after McCarthy worked with Democrats to pass a short-term spending bill to keep the government open. Pleas to save McCarthy's job did not sway Democrats. They're mad because McCarthy coddled Donald Trump after January 6th and is trying to impeach President Joe Biden. Most insults were hurled at Gates, who sent out fundraising messages amid the chaos. Oh, look at that. Oh, look, give me money. I filed the motion to vacate. Using official actions, official actions to raise money. It's disgusting. McCarthy says he won't run again for speaker and that he's at peace with his choices. Doing the right thing isn't always easy, but it is necessary. This has been unprecedented. Could you just very briefly set the scene? What happened this week? We had we've averted a government shutdown. Some people say Kevin McCarthy should be a hero for averting that. But what happened to the right of his party to get him kicked out of the speakership? So we really had to start in the initial bid to become speaker. There's such a small majority for the Republicans in the House right now that McCarthy had to make an enormous number of concessions to win the speakership. Took 15 votes for him to actually win it, which is also unprecedented. Although the word unprecedented is getting totally hackneyed and frankly annoys everyone in America at this point. So if we skip forward to where we are today, the far right flank of the Republican Party had become increasingly disillusioned with McCarthy's leadership and decided that enough was enough, right? That his willingness to not follow through on his guarantees that he had made to become speaker had just become too much. And they were going to invoke one of those concessions which was the ability to vacate the speakership any member of the House at any time. So Matt Gates of Florida, who's widely rumored to be preparing for a run for governor in Florida, decided that he was going to launch this effort to oust McCarthy, which is extraordinarily rare in American history. And uh, it succeeded. Now, this question of what the Democrats were going to do came down to also promises that Kevin McCarthy had made and broken. So there was a number of negotiations that had happened where McCarthy said one thing and ended up doing another. And so there was really no love lost between um, Democrats and McCarthy. A number of Democrats cited his 180 regarding January 6th. You have to remember that these legislators were actually in fear for their lives. There's lots of them who are calling their loved ones concerned that they may never see them again. And McCarthy initially was very strident in his opposition to what had happened and laid blame at Donald Trump's feet. He then famously went to Mar-a-Lago to grovel in front of Donald Trump because he wanted to become speaker, essentially. 
So McCarthy wasn't a trusted figure amongst Democrats, and they had no desire to save Republicans from themselves because they couldn't even trust McCarthy to offer concessions to them. And frankly, there were a lot of Republicans who wouldn't really been too interested in any kind of concession that the Democrats could have won either. So rather than having a future ten, you know, increasingly tenuous relationship with Kevin McCarthy, the Democrats decided that this is a Republican problem, which is what the speakership is, right? The majority elects the speaker and that they weren't going to save Republicans from their own dysfunction. Z, this Republican chaos underscores the unprecedented nature of this midterm removal and really just shows the extreme divisions within the Republican Party. And this does contrast with the display of unity as demonstrated by the Democrats, and especially under Nancy Pelosi. Why is it that Democrats within Congress are united, not just within this Congress, but in in recent history? What has been the glue which has mean that they can be so disciplined in terms of governing? It's a good question, right? I've been racking my brain with this for the past few days because where I'm stuck right now is, yes, there is unity amongst the Democrats, but and I think that unity is coming from their opposition of this far right group, a part of the Republican Party that I'll refer to them as the MAGA folks. But what doesn't make sense to me is why they would oust McCarthy. I, I don't understand what the follow up strategy is here. And that part is really concerning because it seems like the only path forward at this point, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'd love to hear people's feedback on this, is that essentially we're either going to get somebody like Matt Gates, or people are even saying that Trump could be elected speaker, which has never happened that somebody that's not an elected official at, at the present moment has gotten elected as speaker, but they think that it is possible that he could get enough votes for that to happen. So I'm just, I'm struggling to find what, where they think that this unity, this anti-McCarthy unity is going to end up, what the result's going to end up with. Aaron, the one thing we can say is that because the speaker doesn't need to be actually a congressperson, that Trump potentially could have been the speaker, but he's written himself out of that today. He's got other things on his mind, let alone amounting court cases. But to Z's point, because I'm somewhat confused, because if you wanted to keep the speaker on a short leash as and, and you're Hakeem Jeffries, there's a strong argument that says you keep him there because actually his room for maneuver is just so small. And potentially you're going to have a Steve Scalise, a Kevin Hearn or a Jim Jordan. And these aren't necessarily better options. So just with those three names, to the best of your ability, just give us a bit of a snapshot as to what a Steve Scalise a speakership could be, or a Kevin Hearn, or a Jim Jordan. And this, where exactly are they on the spectrum of the Republican Party? I think we need to first address the elephant in the room, no pun intended, which is the Republican House Caucus is ungovernable, right? They don't have a lot of interest in governing. They've demonstrated that repeatedly. And they have just ousted their speaker, and they're not sure who they're going to rally behind. We're hearing them reach for people like Donald Trump, who's going to have to sit in a courtroom an awful lot. And the speaker role is this is a round the clock position that you have to be completely bought into. It's also the kind of position that requires a phenomenal amount of operational skill, setting the calendar, weighing different options of what forward. This is not a minor position, and he would be pretty clearly way out of his depth. The strengths that he has do not 
seem like the strengths that are required of a speaker of the house. Now, when it comes to the people whose hats are in the ring, which the two big serious possibilities are really Steve Scalise, who is the number two as of now, or was the number two before McCarthy was ousted, and Jim Jordan. Um, they are both very far right, certainly by international standards and even by American standards. Steve Scalise once self-described himself as David Duke without all the baggage. David Duke being a very famous white nationalist candidate for Senate in Louisiana and a member of the Klan. Jim Jordan is one of the figureheads of the, the far right of the Republican Party. So he's, I believe, got his start in the Tea Party and has been one of the leading MAGA House Republicans ever since. He's toned down his rhetoric a bit since he's stepped into greater leadership, but his politics certainly haven't shifted whatsoever. I think the biggest difference between McCarthy and Jordan would be that McCarthy was the kind of leader who followed the caucus wherever the wind blew, wherever the wind blew. And Jordan is someone who I think would probably be much more confrontational. And the problem that Jordan would have is that his room for confrontation is very narrow. There's only four seats in their advantage. And one of those seats, by the way, is George Santos, who's indicted for crime. That his availability may come to question soon as well. So it's the narrowest of, of margins, and they're still deploying the same tactics that are extremely aggressive when they're in a situation where the math dictates that they compromise. So they're between a rock and a hard place. They went to 15 votes the first go around when they elected McCarthy because there wasn't a clear person who could lead the caucus forward. And at this point, the Trump concept, in some sense, because he theoretically could at least unify the House caucus and get them to move forward in that sense. But it's still going to be really tough to do the basic business of governing when you've got a caucus that just doesn't really seem that interested in doing it. Mm. Uh, the GOP's internal strife, Z, is it going to significantly impact the 2024 elections will the american people will republican voters right-leaning voters say you know what we can't govern we can't even put together a caucus in congress and will there be any fallout does this on some level down ballot not at the top of the ballot but down ballot mean that the 2024 election could well be an open goal for democrats I wouldn't say an open goal, um, but it's certainly going to affect it greatly. It already is. It's already affecting the 2023 elections. And I think going into 24, it's going to get even more divided. I really think that it's going to be interesting to see where the speaker lands right now, because I think that's going to determine the way that Republicans are going to move forward. I think that we have a situation right now where this could be the opportunity for the far right folks to really expand their base. I think we're already seeing that now, but it, it could go the opposite direction where if we don't have somebody super far right get into that position, then there might be questions around whether they can govern or not, what Ron was saying. Now, in saying that, I don't think that the MAGA super far right voters really give a crap whether they're governing or not. I don't think that's the point. I, I think I said this in the last podcast, but to them, it's really about sticking it to the man, whoever the man is, Right. It's really a populist working class struggle. And instead of coming over to the Bernie side of the table, they're using Trump as their sort of figurehead for what that looks like, which 
is really dangerous. I think some of the folks that we have to watch out for to see if they come into power and how they're going to affect the 24 elections are people like Elise Stefanik, who is very smart and very dangerous. She was more of a McCarthy person when she first got elected. Now she's seen the opportunity to become a very far right MAGA person. And I don't think she's the only one. I think we're going to see more people fall into line because they think that they can get more power on that side of the party. As I said, she's a very smart woman. She's a Harvard grad. She's no dummy, but she's also incredibly dangerous because she knows that she's in this to get power and power only. And I think that we're going to see some more young people just like her take this opportunity. Yeah, I think we're in for a very divided 2024 election, but the speaker and who ends up in that position is going to be a, a big determining factor, I think, for where the party's going next. Aaron, there are some level of parallels between the Republicans in 2023 and the Conservative Party in, let's say, 2019 before the election, where you have a party who is nominally in government governing. They have the majority in whether it's parliament or within Congress but riven by factions, and the tail is literally wagging the dog. Is one of the potential outcomes of this that moderate Republicans will start to veer off and maybe uh, become uh, independents? Because it's, it's really interesting that you've said Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan, and these are not uh at all centrist in the Republican Party. If you're, if you are a moderate Republican, where do you go in this, in this Congress? Is this just a case of literally the tail wagging the dog or can we eventually see the Tea Party, the Maggers, the whatever the far really forming their own caucus and really one day becoming maybe their own party? I mean, this truly is the question of the day and. I'm not the one that has the answer to it as of now. I think that there's been a, a sort of a bottom that a lot of political observers have seen coming because at some point government is about governing and you have to govern, right? You have to pass budgets to keep the government open. And if the government isn't open, you're going to put the country through a phenomenal amount of pain, right? It's hard to claim that you care about the deficit. You know, taking actions that lead to a downgrading of his credit rating, which effectively means that we're going to rack up even more debt. So there's a cognitive dissonance at some point that has to be addressed when you're in power. It's a lot easier when you're in the opposition and you just get to say no. So I don't know where this is going to land. I really don't. And I think that the narrow margins in the House make it even less likely that it's going to be sorted. I think the most interesting vote against McCarthy was Nancy Mace out of South Carolina, who won a, a district that has flipped back and forth. It's essentially where Charleston, South Carolina is. There's a guy named Cunningham who held that seat before, a Democrat, and then she won. She has some fairly moderate positions, like on, for example, the legalization of marijuana. And she voted against McCarthy. And now the knives are out is literally the headline on Politico.com right now because she bought the party and now her uh, staffers have been removed from a number, number of discussion threads. She's being increasingly marginalized within the party. But at the same time, Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise are courting her for her vote for speaker. 
this is the kind of rock in a hard place scenarios that Republicans have for themselves. And like any other bottom, the only way out of it is to make some serious life changes and to change how you operate. But so many of the incentives that exist from the way Republicans structure the primaries, how they choose their eventual candidates, through to the omnipresence of Donald Trump. And they just, there's not a lot that suggests that they can move away from the positions they're in. And there's even less that says that they can maintain the status quo and not face penalty for it. Uh, Z, last question uh, to you before we go over to the UK. We understand the kind of political positioning that Matt Gates and his acolytes fundamentally are, are to the right end of the uh, Republican Party. But what actually is the policy uh, difference between them and, let's say, and more moderate Republicans? Is it fundamentally as simple as Ukraine and funding Ukraine? Or are there other real policy differences between the two factions? Oh, no, I think there's a, quite a lot of policy differences. It depends on who we're talking about, right? Because there's certain folks in states like New York, for example, that have to be a little bit more moderate when they're running for office. And also when they release their platforms and they're running on a platform, that doesn't necessarily mean that they believe that, which is a whole other, that's a whole other podcast episode. We could talk about that and where they're actually voting. But no, I think that we're talking about some of the differences of banning books. We're talking about anti-LGBTQ legislation. There are definitely Republicans that are not anti-LGBTQ, not many of them. They're, most of them are anti-LGBTQ, but there are folks like, I forgot that, that guy in Ohio that ran for president last cycle that was very, very pro-LGBTQ. Kasich. Kasich, right. Yeah. Very pro-LGBTQ rights but fiscally conservative. And I think looking back at history, when we talk about Republicans and the, and this is obviously changing now, right? Because as we get further and further into the future here, the right is shifting further and further to the right. So the folks in the middle have to continue to move further to the right. Um, but traditionally it used to be, we all pretty much agreed that people should have human rights, right? That was fundamentally, we believed that, but we had different ways where, where we differed on policy in terms of fiscal being fiscally conservative and what that meant right now we're talking about should lgbtq people have the right to live in the united states we're talking about things that are have become further and further to the right i do think that there's definitely differences but again those differences are blurring as we're getting further into the future so the question of are they going to create a new party is that old school fiscally conservative Republican going to still exist in the next 10, 20 years? I don't have the answer to that. I don't think any of us do, but I would not be surprised if we do have a new sort of MAGA chapter, we should say, forming, whether that be in the form of a new party or something else. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Now let's go over to the other side of the pond and let's see how the Conservatives got on at the annual gathering in Manchester. Smiles and applause for the conference cameras. This Jeremy Hunt's script. Right now, we're focused on bringing down inflation. But outside the room, the reset narrative being ripped up. Minutes before news leaking that the PM had decided to scrap the northern leg of HS2. HS2 rail link to Manchester was the embodiment of the levelling up project held as transformative for the north of England, now looking set to hit the buffers. Okay, good evening, everybody. Um... With conference thrown into chaos, the West Midlands mayor holding an impromptu stump speech, begging the Prime Minister to change his mind. The choice, very stark. Either, as the rumours say, go on, cancel Euston, cancel to Manchester, but you will be turning your back on an opportunity to level up a once-in-a-generation opportunity. And if that wasn't bad enough, earlier in the day, the Prime Minister's old adversary was back, bold and bullish. Let's be prepared to make conservative arguments again, even if it's unpopular, even if it's difficult. I want everybody in this room to unleash their inner conservative. And finally, my friends, let's make Britain grow again. A competing Tory vision that the grassroots rather like. The Conservative Party gathered in Manchester and revealed a party grappling with its identity and direction, where we had just heard that. As Rishi Sunak's leadership appears to falter, Home Secretary Suella Braverman emerges as a beacon for the party's hardline faction. From her staunch stance on immigration to her controversial views on Human Rights Act, Braverman's speeches have ignited debates within and outside the party. Meanwhile, Sunak's policy decisions and personal anecdotes have raised eyebrows, prompting us to question, is this a strategic shift or a desperate bid to connect with voters? Steve, you were at the Conservative Party conference. For a start off, how was it? Did you have fun? I was there with work. Yeah, it was pretty fun. Conferences are, they're a bit corporate. They're a bit, this one was a bit strange feeling, but yeah, good fun. And could you see a party in its ideological death throes? That's what all the pundits are saying, that this is a party which is very obviously run out of ideological steam, heft, and basically motivation, and they're just floundering. Was that evident? It, it was evident. And if you followed the news, which was all over the place with different stories and different factions, that was very true. It was not that well attended. It felt pretty, pretty flat. This is what everyone will go, will, who, who goes, will, will tell you. The big thing that came across to me was it was this weird combination on the, on the policy debates of like trains and culture wars. You had some quite technocratic stuff coming out in speeches or that was presented in that way. And then some really, as I'm sure we'll get onto, just alarming culture war stuff, Braverman being the biggest example of that. But it felt like this uneasy combination. We were talking about train tracks one minute and some really nasty anti-trans stuff the next. Corey, this conference happened in Manchester, Britain's third largest city. I, I presume you Mancunians were incredibly proud to have the government there, all its ministers in within your city and telling you that HS2 is going to be scrapped. 
telling us HS2 was going to be scrapped from the former terminus, what was back in the 19th century, the equivalent of the West Coast Main Line. Yes, in a train station. They told us, screw you, Manx. You're not getting your new train line in a former train station. Not only a former train station, but a train station that was built in the 19th century when we managed to basically build the entire British railway within a generation. But now we can't build a simple high-speed line up and down the country. And it needs to take take 14 years, but we're only going to do half the job. Sorry, you can probably tell I'm not very happy. And of course, Leah, we had Suella Braverman. And, and as I said in my intro, she seems to have been the star, the one person who really did light up the conference floor. Did she light it up for all the right reasons? The short answer to that, obviously, is no. And I, I'm not sure she's the only one who brought glitz and glamour. I'm pretty sure Pretty Patel did her worst. Look, I think it's very, very strange to me first of all that the home secretary is getting quite so much airtime but secondly the posture that she seems to take on every single issue that she makes representations on look it's clear that i would say she's lost her way i'm sure many around the table agree that this conference was not setting out a stall as to how the country governance can be improved it was about winning the leadership which for party. <laughs> that can't seem to agree on what conservatism is. It's somewhat extraordinary. No, it was not for all the right reasons at all. It was for the continued self-interest that I think we've been seeing for quite some time. And I'm not really sure that many of the speeches that have been touted as being representative of the future of the party had much substance to them at all. Steve, Rishi Sunak seemed to say with his address that he was the change candidate. He was going to change things even though he's been in power for uh, a year and his party's been in power for 13 years, was there not any sense of the massive irony that the governing party who's been in for over half a generation is talking about change? And surely the change that's needed is for them to leave. I 100% agree with that. It's a really hard sell, isn't it? After 13 years, after so many different prime ministers, to say, actually, we're the change party. It really doesn't seem credible. The way he's talked about is a sort of a spreadsheet person, issue, and he's not pretending to be a culture warrior. And so I think a bit behind his change thing is that people are making, to use the uh, phrase on the sort of door of the conference, long-term decisions. And that was his thing with HS2, where he was saying, essentially, the spreadsheet doesn't add up anymore. We're going to make the right decision. Um, it's hardly a sort of particularly inspiring vision of change, but I think he was trying to I say trying and not probably not succeeding, but trying to get across some kind of idea that he's a do the right thing kind of guy, long term reformer. Like you say, it's not the most credible pitch, but I, I think that's what they were going for. Corey, let's come back to, on onto HS2 because the re, the revoking of the Manchester leg has come in for massive condemnation from Boris Johnson, from David Cameron, uh, and Andy Street, the mayor of the West Midlands. Really, we should just call it Greater Birmingham. But just for the sake of this conversation, just call it Greater Birmingham. The mayor of Greater Birmingham, has, he threatened to resign and he's a conservative. Is this really a damning indictment of Britain in 2023 that a massive infrastructure project, we can't see it through? That even after it's had bipartisan support, um, it's at the vagary of party politics. And it just shows how bankrupt we are, that yes, the costs have been spiralling 
as they have been for just about everything because of inflation, but we don't have the testicular fortitude to try and balance our economy. I've really led you down a path to say, yes, Royful, you're incredibly correct here, but you're sat there in Manchester in the north. This is a damning indictment of short-term party politics over what's good for the nation, isn't it? Yes and yes. However, with a few caveats. Number one, Boris Johnson, George Osborne, David Cameron. David Cameron put out a tweet yesterday when it got announced, a long-winded tweet, basically saying, wrong move, why are you doing this? And both Boris Johnson and George Osborne, who was David Cameron's chancellor, or his number two in effect, both retweeted it and said, I agree. And so did, I think we've had pretty much every prime minister in the last, since it was approved in 2011, has come out and said, this is a big mistake. I don't put much weight in that because at the end of the day, these are politicians who are now out of office who are concerned with their legacy. And they're concerned that something massive in their legacy, especially David Cameron, under whose premiership it was approved, so yeah, I don't put much store by that because it's about legacy for them. I do find it very interesting that Andy Street, mayor for the West Midlands, I find it interesting and quite encouraging that he was prepared to essentially imply that he might eject us in his membership of the Conservative Party as a result of it. And I found that quite interesting, a bit of solidarity there, because obviously the line is going to Birmingham, so his main city is safe. So I found it quite interesting and quite, yeah, I thought that was quite good of him to show solidarity with the Northwest or Manchester, because that's the other thing I wanted to make. So I agree with pretty much everything you said. However, I would just point out, and even this is me as a Mycunian supremacist, HF2 was never, even this leg that's been cancelled, really was never about the North. It was really about Manchester. And as I said, I'm a Mycunian supremacist, unapologetically. However, I, I do I do want to say something for my fellow Northerners from, from Newcastle to Leeds to Liverpool, basically the entire North, except the conurbation that is Greater Manchester, they weren't going to benefit from this because HS2 wasn't going there. I think HS2, I am very, as a as somebody who thinks that we should be building things as a country and also as a slight train enthusiast, I'm, I'm annoyed about what's happened to HS2. But I, I wasn't necessarily that bought into HS2 as a project as it was, even as it was conceived back then, because to me, it should have been much grander in scope. HS2 should have connected up every major, every, it should have connected up, let's say, the, the, the six, seven major cities in this country. Not only should it have gone from Manchester, London to Birmingham as it is, and Birmingham to Manchester and Leeds as it was, it should have also gone to Newcastle. It should have gone up to Scotland. It should have extended the East Coast and the West Coast main line up to Glasgow and Edinburgh. It probably should have gone to Bristol, probably into Wales too, keep everybody happy. And maybe even down to the Southwest because they're always complaining in Cornwall, quite rightly so, that they've hardly got a train line serviceable to them either. So I say all that to say this. Yes, I do think it's ridiculous that they've cancelled basically a third of a project, but they're still going to be paying the two thirds of it. Because let's remember, the leg that they've cancelled, the phase uh, 1B and phase 2, essentially everything above Birmingham is £36 billion. But the entire project was projected at the moment to be £100 billion. So what they're saying is, we're going to spend £60 odd billion on a train line to Birmingham, but we're not going to bother spending just an extra £30 odd billion connecting back up to the northwest. I think it's just ridiculous. I think it's quite ironic that Sunak talks about short-termism and they're all about the long-term. This is short-term thinking. Because Sorry, I know I'm banging on one last point. I think it's also important to, to remember, which isn't really covered much in, in the press around this. The costs for HS2 were spread out initially, I think, over about 20 years. From the mid-teens, it was originally projected to finish the whole, all of it, in 2032, I think, which is another almost 10 years from now. 
But that cost was split over every year because obviously the treasury don't want to be putting on the balance sheet 100, as it was, 36 billion in one year. So if we really think about it, they've said we're not going to spend the equivalent of a couple of billion pounds each year for the next 15 years because, you know what, it doesn't quite make any sense. Considering we're a one trillion pound economy, we don't want to spend a couple of billion every year on this major infrastructure project. I think is damning. One thing which Sunak has, has tried to present himself as is that he is the strong politician who can make tough decisions. This was a tough decision, wasn't it? So maybe him cutting off the legs of the Midlands and the North economically shows that he's somebody who's there to make the hard and tough decisions. I strongly disagree. And I think if you look at anybody who was on the media round during the conference, who was pressing him on the points that had clearly already been determined in Downing Street before he showed up at the conference, would agree with me. Look, I can see what he's trying to do incredibly unsuccessfully. But ultimately, it's, it's not just the short-termism here that is the problem. It is that basically, he's already been criticised for this. He's got a constituency in Richmond, in North Yorkshire. And I know you all think that I'm a Southerner, but I actually grew up in North Yorkshire. And that many of the people that I know and who I've been educated with, their own land has been massively affected by HS2 and repossessions and all the like, which obviously cancelling the project makes all of those decisions and transactions irreversible. But also, you can't go... You can't put people in the position they ought to have been in if this decision had been made sooner. I think it spells very strongly of extremely poor governance, not just a short-sightedness, but the inability to manage projects that are government procurement projects in a way that suggests that you have got control from a government perspective. And ultimately, look, the numbers would have never balanced on this project. But they certainly could have balanced in a way that Sunak wouldn't have needed to pull the plug to look better and position this as something that he's willing to take the hard decisions on. And I think it's also somewhat frightful that despite Labour being on his coattails about levelling up, that they too are not willing to back HS2 in its current format. I don't know. I still think it's posturing. I don't think it's particularly got that much to do with HS2. I don't think it improves Sunak's desire to be seen as somebody who makes difficult decisions. I think he's hiding behind data and convenience, and it's disappointing. Steve, is it true that, uh, as Leah said, that the books are never going to balance on HS2? I thought the whole point of infrastructure projects was you build them, but then there are economic benefits outside of, let's say, people just traveling on on trains or planes or automobiles. It's fundamentally about seeding economic growth. And this is something which, in a way of leveling up the economy, surely the benefits, the long-term benefits far outweighed the short-term cost of this uh, massive high-speed rail line. Well, they did very extensive cost-benefits analysis years ago on this stuff, and they were hotly debated about what you get back put in terms of things like people being able to work on trains and, and Wi-Fi and, and, and money they save if they get to the office on time, all that kind of stuff. And so years ago, it was coming back as something that, as you say, was a long-term economic benefit. Now, I don't know the extent to which what that which that's changed with more working from home and things. Those arguments are used for the changes. I haven't seen the latest cost benefit analysis. I did want to make another point, picking up on what, what Leo and Gory said about you know, what why is Sunak doing this? Because I found myself walking around the sort of conference hall as mentioned, thinking to myself, 
why on earth is he doing this in Manchester in this way? It's been leaked out before or it's got out before. Why is he doing it? And the only thing I can think of is that it's freed him up 36 billion quid, which I think is looks like it's going to be used for pretty good old-fashioned pork barreling, as in repairing potholes, making roads. I haven't seen the details yet, but I suspect they're going to end up in seats in the Midlands and the North that the Conservatives are trying to hold next time round. So while he will be perhaps presenting himself as long-term tough decisions, I think actually probably the reason for this is he thinks he can, over the course of the next year, use it as a vote winner. I don't know, but that's the only rational thing I can think about this announcement. And he has talked about moving it into other transport projects, hasn't he? Which some of them are, are road projects, which surely we should be going against. But he has talked about a new station here, tarting up a train line there. And these are all in the North. He says, I know what the North needs. So there is some logic to what you say. But Corey, I'm really strong on the economic benefits of what this was going to bring uh, to UK cities. You and I know, not just you and I know, every economist knows who looks at uh, Britain that we are disproportionately in hock to the South for our economic growth. Our youngest, our brightest and our best all leave regional cities in large droves and head off to London, which then just goes to exacerbate uh, the wealth and the knowledge imbalance that there is in Britain. And then we have things like the Elizabeth Line, which is built, which goes throughout London, multi-million, a billion dollar project to dig a hole through London, which just then agglomerates the whole effect where London gets infrastructure. And we can't even get a bloody line between Birmingham and Manchester. And, and just before you talk about the economic benefits that it would have brought to Manchester, Curzon Street Station, which is where the line is going to, is uh, part of what's called Eastlands, which is this uh, deprived bit of the, the very centre of Birmingham, right next to an area called Digba. And mm. that is a key part of the regeneration of the s southern eastern bit of Birmingham. We have the new, the Birmingham City University is there. We have, we have in the BBC have moved in just around the corner. It's all primed for this big new railway station to go there to provide the economic uptake that bit of Birmingham needs. And I'm sure uh, there's a similar story in Manchester. On that Birmingham point, quickly, why wasn't it going to New Street? New Street is probably outside of London. And I think outside of London, I think Leeds train station, strangely enough, is is the busiest train station in the country. And then it's probably followed by either Manchester or Birmingham New Street. Why is it not going to New Street? Surely that would make more sense since New Street is the central station of Birmingham that clicks in the entire Midlands. I believe it's because of the infrastructure cost to redevelop New Street would have been prohibitive. And Birmingham New Street was just redeveloped, what, five, six years yeah. Birmingham New Street Station is it's in almost in an inaccessible place for further development. The amount oh, yeah. of buildings it's you quite need tight, to take right. down, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. The cost would Fair be ten, tens of billions if you're going to do that. And actually, Curzon Street Station, which has been disused for eons, was actually the very first train station in Birmingham. So there is a historical precedent uh, to reopen that station. And it has this wonderful kind of neo-Georgian frontage, which is, which is, has some heritage status. Okay. So there, so there is sense. history Fair. there and there is the space. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yep. 
So yeah, speaking of the economic developments in Manchester, so over the last sort of five to 10 years, the southern and uh, what are we talking about? The south and west of Manchester City Centre basically expanded slash are expanding tons of tower blocks filled with mainly international students with a lot of money or with parents with a lot of money and Londoners who figured that they can pay what they pay for in zone four in London, they can pay for in what is the equivalent of zone one in Manchester. So there's been a lot of development on those parts of the city and ongoing, just constant skyscrapers of mainly apartments going up. But the part of the city centre that was a bit neglected is actually where Manchester Piccadilly Station is, which is where the northern terminus of HS2 would be, which is the main train station, intercity train station in Manchester. And that entire area, there was so much, so much development has been planned in that area contingent on HS2. So again, I'm a Mancunian supremacist, so I'm very one-track focused when it comes to Manchester. But the fact is Manchester Manchester is expanding, in my opinion, at an unsustainable rate. And so every single square inch of the city centre needs to be built on. And where you have quite a lot of space left, only bit that you have a lot of space is where around that area, the east slash northeast of the city centre, where Piccadilly is. No HS2 is coming there now. Half of the investment that was going to go into that area, guarantee is going to be pulled instantly. That nothing, that's nothing to be said of greater investment in, in other areas of Manchester. It's nothing to be said of what the investment that would have brought to Leeds, which was the part of HS2 that was scrapped two years ago. The amount of investment into Leeds that it will no longer happen now. Leeds is the second after London. Leeds is the next sort of finance centre in the UK. If you really want to level up, then especially in sort of the services, the finance industry, which powers so much of the British economy, Leeds would be your your next place after Canary Wharf and the city. No HS2 means all of that investment that was planned for Leeds is not going to happen anymore. So yeah, again, I just find it so ironic, almost insulting that they, I say they, which is, you know, is speaking about this sort of we're no longer looking at the short term. We are the long term government making these incredibly short term decisions. And going back to what Steve said, and I didn't think of what Steve, it's not something I'd considered in my sort of whole processing of this, but it makes so much sense what Steve said in terms of instead of spending this 30 odd billion on it, on the second part of HS2, they're now divvying it up in different sort of transport projects. And I found it so strange. They mentioned that they're making this big thing of Bradford. I know Lee Anderson got in trouble for saying who wants to go to Bradford this week in some session. With all due respect, Bradford is quite a minor town in the north of England. And I did find it quite interesting that they're pumping two billion pounds into a new train station in Bradford. I'm like, why? But okay, fine. But back to what Steve was saying, it makes sense. A lot of the, a lot of the, this divvying up of the money makes sense because they are looking at losing a lot of these so-called red wall seats. These seats that voted Tory for the first time in, in generations that Boris Johnson won. They're looking at losing a lot of them. If you say it's 500 million for your area, Here's another two billion for your area. Suddenly, hey, some of those voters who might have thought, forget the Conservatives, we're going back to our original home of Labour. Hey, they might reconsider. Thanks. Uh, yeah, Steve met bringing up. I didn't think of that at all. But yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. They're putting money into a lot of these areas in the north. Because people, when people speak of the red, the red wall, a lot of these red wall seats are not in the cities because the cities are safely red and will be forever. Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, they're red. But the Red Wall and these places in between these cities in the law that voted Conservative for the first time, those areas are going to be getting a lot of this HS2 money. Those areas would have been very unhappy that it was all about Manchester. Quite rightly, but now they're suddenly getting money. So again, just going back to this whole thing about it's not about short-termism, it's about long-termism. Is it really? Or is it really just about saying, you know what, we're never going to win Manchester anyway. 
let's funnel a few billion here to this place in the middle of Yorkshire. Let's funnel a few more billion here to this place in the middle of Lancashire. And hey, we might keep 10, 20 seats. And instead of going down by 50 seats next election, 100 seats next election, might only be 50. Or hey, we might even squeak a win. Just finishing up, Leah, Sunak did talk about his heritage and his background. And he basically shared anecdotes about his grandfather. And he expressed pride in being Britain's first Asian prime minister. And he wrapped this up in a lovely bow by saying that his upbringing in Southampton proved that Britain is far from being a racist country. Is there any contradiction or irony with what he said and the position of the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman? I've thought about this a lot because, particularly because of the circles that I spent the weekend with, he hasn't been elected and therefore it's very difficult to test those statements that he made in his speech. By by not having an elected figure at the helm, you can make any kind of assertion that you want to. But there's been a lot of commentary, particularly in the last couple of days, that has affirmed the idea that actually if it had gone to the public, Rishi Sunak would not be our prime minister. And so to come to some kind of conclusion that because he is holding the highest office in the land that Britain is not a racist country, I'm not sure that we can have confidence in that. And I think it's absolutely undermining the experience of ethnic minorities up and down the land to deny the lived experience of so many people who look like Suella or look like Rishi or look like Kemi or look like Kwasi Kwarteng, all of whom have very much denied that Britain is a racist country. But we have data, we have experience, we have reports that contradict that entirely. And so it is a matter of convenience. It is a way of making oneself comfortable with whatever truth you need to tell yourself to get through the day. And it is sinister, it is deceptive, it is unsavory, it is disappointing. But ultimately, that is where we're at in 2023, Bursky. I tell you where we are in terms of this programme. We're at the very end. Very quickly, I'd like to thank Steve, Corey, Z, Aram and Leah for joining us today. But Steve, very quickly, in time-honoured tradition, why don't you tell people, A, what you've been up to in the last seven days, other than the Conservative Party conference, that is and where they can find you on the socials. Yeah, it's mostly been getting back for conference and hiding in a dark room and getting myself ready for Labour conference next weekend, which I suspect I'm going to enjoy a rather lot more. I'm um, Steve Zero Neil at Steve Zero Neil on Twitter. And of course, you can find me occasionally on the No Man's Land podcast. Corey Bernard, same question to you, sir. So this week, I, I was actually supposed to go to the conference. I was going to, I really wanted to get to some of the fringe events. Because they have some fringe events within the sort of secure fortress that is the conference zone, which unless you're actually an attendee, you can't get to. But they have some fringe events at some venues a bit outside. And I really tried to make them. Life conspired against me and I didn't. So life has been quite boring this week. I wish I could tell you that I was at the session on mental health and conservatives and the future of ethnic minority voters for conservatives. Two of the fringe events that I wanted to make, but I didn't. Oh, that's what I've been doing this week. Not making it to even the fringiest of fringe events and of course you're not on social media so we won't ask I'm you not, no. where to find where you can be found on twitter or on threads z i shall return z uh same question to you this week we're still very much gearing up for the 2023 election so we're doing a lot of field work out there again we are looking for better candidates in 2024 so if you're interested in running for office please contact us we'd love to to help you out 
And you can find us on all the social media platforms, the sole of your shoe, S-O-L-E strategies. Aaron Fisher, how has the last week been for you over there in Oakland, sir? It's been a good week. I've been head down doing all sorts of work, spanning from exposing a charter school for some really horrific treatment of its students, particularly its students with special needs, through to more political endeavors and trying to yeah, change the face of who's running the state of California in the state legislature. And just whilst we were on California, can you tell us about the passing of Diane Feinstein? What was her legacy and what will we be missed in her passing? Diane Feinstein came into the Senate in the early 90s. She took over as mayor when we had a double assassination at our city hall in San Francisco, most famously Harvey Milk, but also I believe it was George Moscone. And so she really shepherded San Francisco through some really difficult times. And then as a senator, she was one of the first truly powerful women senators in Senate history. She really was a liberal lion, as they say, and was particularly well-known for passing the assault weapon ban, which later was not renewed, but for many years limited the, the lethality of the weapons that you could buy in the U.S. She is going to always be remembered for that incredible service. In more recent times, it's been a more uneven show, unfortunately. Her funeral's actually today, so I think I'm just going to leave it there. But she certainly is one of the giants of recent Senate history and I think deserves to be remembered for the tremendous contributions that she's had to San Francisco and to California over, it must be a five-decade career in service. Beautifully put. Leah, you have the honor of telling us not only what you've been up to, but also maybe what Broadstairs Consulting has been up to. Right, well, that's very kind. In the last week, I think I've been to five conferences. I've spoken at two events. And after this, I need to pack because I need to move house. Favorite Broadstairs Consulting, we've been busy attending uh, the party conferences. I haven't made it in person, but members of my team have. We've been promoting the Longest Day podcast, which has had some very exciting guests for season two, so that's been keeping us quite busy. And we can be found on social media, Broadstairs Consulting, the Longest Day podcast, and I can be found on Instagram at Scene Heard Spoken. There you go. That's been your panel again. That was Steve O'Neill, Corey Bernard, Zeke Cohen, Sanchez, Aaron Fisher, and Leah Brown. There were your panel. I've been Royfield Brown. Don't forget, left center politics is right thinking politics. And to an end with neoliberalism and to an end with this particular party in power. 13 years has most definitely seen not only a bankruptcy of our treasury, but a bankruptcy of their ideas. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.